to the Security Serengeti. We're your hosts, David Schwendinger and Matthew Keener. Stop what you're doing and subscribe to our podcast. Leave us a lovely five-star review and follow us at Serengeti Sec on Twitter. We're here to talk about some recent news headlines and hopefully provide some insight and analysis and practical application that you can take back into the office to help protect your organization. Views and opinions of this podcast are ours and ours alone and do not reflect the views or opinions of our employers. So Samsung just came out with a new maintenance mode that isn't just for the owner's protection. It also protects technicians from inappropriate user data. And uh, you can use your own imagination on what that data might be. All right. For our first article today, we're talking phishing. Phishing works so well. Crims won't bother with deep fakes, says Sophos Chap. I don't know where this crims thing came from. I heard it for the first time on a podcast like six or eight weeks ago, and it's living rent-free in my head, as they say. Well, considering this is from the register, I thought it was just one of those nuanced register phrases. Maybe, but I've heard it in other places. Lawfare uses it. There's other places that use it too. So I don't, I don't know what's going on here, but... Is it in the dictionary yet? This is the idiocracy changing of language. Oh, right. <laughs> Criminals is too many syllables. It's too hard to say. Yeah, everybody wants to get everything down to one syllable words. And it will sound like... You know, anybody who has a nickname or, you know, <laughs> it goes from, you know, Samuel to Sam. You know, everyone shortens it down to just a one syllable It's going to be S soon. Just going to be like one Single letter. <laughs> Single letter words. There's only 26 <laughs> words in the... Anyways, anyways, so uh, Sophos researcher John Shire says the panic over deepfakes is unrealistic and it's just easier to fish people. So the deepfakes are not going to be widely used. The main this area makes they... complete sense. <laughs> Let me finish, man. The main area they see deepfakes as being effective is romance scam. But yeah, I'd agree with him and I'd agree with you. I think for the vast number of criminals, they don't care where they're getting their money from. They don't care where they're getting their credentials from. They just want to make that dollar dollar bill, y'all. What's well, this? The same thing as the NSA tag teams and the, you know the tailored access program, where they only use zero days when they really have to. This is yeah. the same concept, I think. Yep. Now I, I will I will add some caveats here. If as a criminal you need to get into a specific institution then deepfakes might be worth it. If you're trying to break into a bank and steal $100 million, like it might be worth the it might be worth the expense to create some deepfakes. For government-related threats that are attempting to break in somewhere, it might also be worth it because a lot of those, especially government, governments tend to have a much more rigorous checking process and having a deepfake of a general to tell somebody to go ahead and do something probably goes a lot further for military and government attacks than it does for private company ones. Right. I would say that definitely makes sense for DOD because there's the big intimidation factor when issuing or, you know, when a, when a senior, when senior leadership, whether, you know, regardless of the level of general colonel or whatever, tell someone down the chain, Hey, I want you to do this thing. It's, yeah. I would say it's pretty rare for them to say, well, that's not the policy or that's not the procedure, sir. Or I'm not going to do that. So I'd say that would probably be really effective in the DOD type scenario. Yeah, that makes sense. And also they could be like, this is classified. Don't tell anybody about it or something like that as a way to keep a secret too. Oh, right. Yep. So like I said, I don't think deep fakes are going to be a common security issue this year. I don't think they're going to be a common security next year. But what about in five years? Like maybe it'll be so incredibly easy to spin up a fake realistic avatar that we all do it all the time when we, you know, log into the metaverse. <laughs> <laughs> so, but then. But then if everybody's doing it, we won't fall for it anymore. So it's the period in between then and now 
that's the dangerous period because it's not normal and every day. Like at this point in time, most people are not falling for the common fish emails. They're still, so the, they're still the like 10 to 15%. Yeah. Yeah. Like the Nigerian prince, like in five, five or 10 years, deep fakes are going to be like a Nigerian prince spam email. Well, some of them will be. I, I think you're going to have varying levels of quality, just like you do in phishing emails, because there are That's some fair. really high quality created phishing emails as well. So I'd say, yeah. you know, the eventually you're going to get to that period where it's common and there's just a, a spectrum of how well it's done. Yeah. You know, we hear a lot about the deep fakes and the danger of, you know, oh my, oh, oh no, this thing could happen. And, you know, what's the consequence of that? But you don't hear a lot about anyone proposing any countermeasures for what to do about it other than be afraid, you know? So, you know, what would those countermeasures look like? Or, or is, is, is everything going to have voice and video analysis built into the communication platforms? Is Zoom going to have that built in? Or the iPhone for FaceTime or anything like that? Is that all going to just naturally be built in the communications and the detection of possible deep fakes using some kind of analysis? I think that's the best place for it. Like if you pushed it out via... Android or iPhone, like that would put it in the most people's hands the fastest. Yeah. I, I, I'm just thinking that that could be one avenue or, or maybe they'll start doing all communications are going to have to have mutual authentication on both sides to validate you are who you're, you're, you're talking yeah. to who you think you're talking to versus a simple phone number or something like that. Yeah. You've mentioned that before. Let's, can we go back to the video, the communication platform real quick? Cause that actually is going to be interesting. The first chat the first video chat platform like zoom or blue jeans or teams that comes out with automatic deep fake detection that's going to be an interesting differentiator for them mm -hmm. so i wonder if we would see widespread adoption of that platform based on just that or if that's not enough of a not enough of a thing well you know what we're going to see first probably is a startup that says i have this team's plugin <laughs> that does deep fake analysis you know, there are going to be startups that do these one-off kind of detections that can augment existing communications platforms. And then eventually they'll be bought up and rolled into the existing ones. I don't expect no, you're right. that yep. you're going to have the big ones actually roll out this kind of thing. Yep. That makes, that makes complete sense. That's how almost everything fun and new in technology happens. Right. But, you know, we, we talked about this before, you know, maybe they're going to end up going with, at least in the interim, simple things where you have like spy mo movies, bona fides, where, you know, you have to use a code word or something like that, which is offline, you know, via code book or whatever, in order to validate who you're talking to is who you believe it to be simply rather than simply relying on their, their visual representation or the audio representation of them. Hmm. I'm imagining, you know, people on business calls, like they're on the Metro and they're going to call and they pull out their pocket, like their code book and flip to page 27. The, the, the counter phrase is the Eagle flies at dawn. <laughs> I was thinking the pigeon rests on the steeple in the rain, but you know, we could use that one. <laughs> so why does this matter? Well, we're just on the rising side of the FUD cycle. I don't know if there's actually like a legitimate FUD cycle that anybody's documented, but I don't think we're quite at hysteria yet, but it kind of feels like we're getting there with all the articles. So you should watch out for it and be realistic about the threat and where you're concerned. Like I said, do a little bit of a mental threat model. You don't have to necessarily do a full one, but stop and think about it and be like, are we the type of company that would be targeted by deep fakes? You know, are we in the military industrial complex? Do we have a 
very specific, unique data or a large amount of money worth targeting. And if not, you probably don't have to do anything about it. Have a mental response prepared if your CEO or your CISO asks you what you're doing about it. And the answer is good process. The answer is not buy a new tech cool thing. Unless, of course, you can justify it that way and haven't been able to get that in the budget for the last couple of years. <laughs> Use an excuse to get a new toy. How does us buying you a Lamborghini help against the... Like, well, when you take a call from me, the Lamborghini's in the background, so you know it's me. It's complicated. If that's, you my, that's my multi-factor. It's my multi-factor token. It's a something I am and something I have. Which is a Lamborghini. <laughs> a Lamborghini. <laughs> that's awesome. Oh, I should try to pull that one off. Yeah. I need a I yeah. need a Lamborghini as my second factor. So the last note on this is just be forewarned. This will eventually become an issue simply because it'll be so easy to create deep fakes of anybody with enough audio, which we're doing right now, David. We're providing lots of audio for someone to make deep fakes of us. But we were not important. Well, at least I'm yet. Not. But when you're the king of Britain, <sighs> one day, one day. Important. All right. So the next article is world's largest Bitcoin miner firm core scientific on the verge of insolvency. This comes to us from Crypto Slate. So on the 26th of October in an SEC filing, Core Scientific said its operating performance and liquidity have been severely impacted by the rise in electricity costs and falling Bitcoin prices. But the third thing here is also the difficulty in mining. So for Bitcoins, I think it's annually, right? It halves the amount of Bitcoins that can be produced, which greatly increases the difficulty of producing any one Bitcoin. So it used to be when you mined Bitcoin, you'd get 50 Bitcoin if you were successful. And then it dropped to 25 and then 12. Is that where we're at? 12? No, we're far. We are way down from 12, aren't we? I don't pay attention. I'm not sure how many Bitcoin you get with a successful mine today, but it's it's significantly less than 50. So your payoff is a lot smaller as well for, for each successful mining effort. And the rising electricity costs, I think there's really two factors here because of the the migration to or the attempted migration to renewables, which is raising costs as they shut down coal plants and hydroelectric plants and nuclear power plants and everything that's not wind or solar, as well as the great amount of inflation that we're seeing over time as well. And this is only going to get worse as inflation gets worse as well. So apparently the core scientific in just a month ago had over a thousand Bitcoin and 29 million in cash. But today they only have 24 Bitcoin and 26 million in cash. So they've spent a significant amount of money, you know, what's that 976 Bitcoin in, in the meantime, just to maintain their operations in that one month. And at that rate, obviously they are not going to last too much longer if they keep up that burn rate. But this, this filing, one of the reasons that they made this filing is to announce that they were not going to pay a whole bunch of their expenses. Yeah. So they weren't going to pay for their equipment financing or their promissory notes. This is all I can think of is that's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see how that works out. <laughs> I don't think it will. Uh, and nope. and they said, okay, you know, we're, we're, these are the things we're not going to do. And this is some of the strategies we're going to attempt to implement in order to fix this. This is, this one is hilarious. <laughs> the first strategy is hiring additional strategic advisors. That's going to solve it. Yeah. I think what that what that really is is a sneaky way of cashing out. Yeah. So they're gonna take the what money remains in the company and they're gonna shell it out to some 
to either them or their friends via via this strategic advisors hiring or or contracts. They're going to attempt to raise more money. Obviously, that's a, a way to get more money. They may try to restructure. And in the article, it says they may try attempt to restructure by exchanging debt for stock. And this makes no sense to me because who is going to say, yeah, rather than you owing me money, I'm going to accept stock basically <laughs> as payment for you who's yeah. about ready to go out of business. Yeah, it's an intelligence uh, test. <laughs> it may be. I don't see that one working out. And of course, the final possibility is bankruptcy, in which case the holders of that company's stock lose their entire investment. And, and they anticipate that, the and the reason this is so terrible is they anticipate that their cash resources, that, that uh, 24 Bitcoin and that 29, 26 million will be gone by the end of the year. That's a, quite a lot of spend. I mean, we're only at two months left in the year. That's 13 million a month, they think. That's a that's yeah. a lot of electricity. Yep. I mean, if they're going to burn through 13 million a month and at Bitcoin at 20,000, like it just sounds like Bitcoin has got to start going up, right? Is it no longer profitable for anyone to do this? Or did they have something specific they did poorly that's causing them? Well, in the article, it said that they are the ones that are the worse off. There are other mining companies that are not, are not in this bad of shape. But I think you, one of the things that they didn't mention in here as a possible strategy was moving operations to where it's electricity makes, is cheaper. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, which I'm kind of surprised that they that they didn't list that as a strategy. Yeah, just because because Bitcoin mining is such a, at least on the surface, a very simple business. You set up your ASIC miners or whatever, and feed them electricity, and they feed out bitcoins. Like I don't think you probably need some software to you know coordinate them and pull in all the bitcoins from their wallets, et cetera, et cetera. But like it's not like a it's not like a process where, you know, you've got two companies and one has really poor human resources and so therefore the other one has a competitive advantage like it's a fairly simple business yeah actually now that i think about it in you know i think and maybe the other mining company should take this into consideration is that what core scientific should have done early on when they were doing their mining is create another company that makes power plants <laughs> Yeah, uh, I saw a and couple have of their own that. power yeah. generation, so they're not paying for the electricity, mm -hmm. and then they could have been self-sustaining. And if they had invested money early on, they they probably would be able to maintain this virtually indefinitely. And if they at any point they start running down the amount of money they're doing, they can then sell that electricity. Yeah. Now I actually found another one. I'm reading articles trying to figure out if it's profitable to mine Bitcoin right now at the cost. And here's an article from back in June where it says when Bitcoin's trading close to $20,000, it was barely mineable, barely profitable. And a lot of miners were selling their Bitcoin reserves to pay electricity bills. And they pointed out also debt servicing. It's possible that this company has a ton of mm -hmm. debt from purchasing those ASIC miners or mm -hmm. something else before. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe when they did their math, they were like, oh, you know, Bitcoin won't drop under $40,000. This makes total sense to buy another 10,000 miners or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So this is really poor planning. So rather, rather than take some of that money that they'd made mining Bitcoin and pay down their debt, they expanded. Yeah. And went yep. into more debt. Yep. 
Yeah. So really, you could, they. Could, I, I guess what I'm trying to get at with that statement is they can blame the the failing of the company on electricity costs, Bitcoin prices, and money difficulty. But mm-hmm. the bottom line is poor business plan. Yeah. And poor business execution is what really what's failing this company. But of course, this really doesn't matter to virtually anybody listen to this because they don't work for Core Scientific. But it just shows that um, even Bitcoin is not perfect. There are problems that they're dealing with on that side. All right. Good times. So for our next article, we have an article from our bytes talking about maintenance mode. The title is Maintenance Mode Aims to Keep Phone Data Private During Repairs. So as anybody who's had to get their phone repaired knows, you usually have to leave it with someone or have it sent out. I recently, excuse me, recently broke the screen on my phone and had to go look at getting it repaired. And I went to Best Buy and they send it to a central servicing center to have it repaired, unless your store is, I guess, super fancy or whatever. And I was saying the Geek Squad can't fix that? At least, the store, at least the store that I went to, they told me they ship it out to somebody else to fix it. So, and when you do this, they tell you, you have to unlock the phone and leave it powered on for this so they, they can get into it. Disable the lock screen so they can get into it. And as I'm sure we've all heard, there've been many reports in the news over the years of repair technicians and appropriately accessing and saving data on the phone. Especially now, as every year the phone gets more capable and it becomes more and more of a part of your life. You may have private pictures on there. You'll probably have your banking information and access to your bank accounts. There will be chat history, browser history, your cryptocurrency wallet may be on there, MFA tokens, your SIM might be able to intercept your text while it's out of your possession. Opportunities abound for the invasion of privacy, blackmail, or just straight theft. Uh, So according to the article, what a lot of people do is they restore to factory defaults before turning in a phone for repair. But that's not ideal either because now you have to go back and reset up everything again. So... Now, now apparently you don't have to. Now there's something called a maintenance mode that creates a temporary disposable user account that does not have access to any of your files. It unfortunately does not back up your data. It merely provides a temp account on the system. So this is interesting and I think it'd be useful. Although I have some questions. Does it protect against somebody just copying the whole phone, like connecting it to your computer with a USB cable and putting it on as a drive and then just starting to copy stuff off there? Yeah, it really depends on how they're doing, you know, how they're managing the accounts. You know, if they're just doing whole phone encryption, which means that any user logged into the phone decrypts the entire phone, and then they're managing the access just via permissions to say, yeah, the whole phone's decrypted by whichever user logs into it, but this user can't access that user's data. Then if you were to do a whole disk image, you're still getting all that data. It's just the permissions that would prevent that access. So in that case, I think you'd be in trouble versus if they're encrypting the user data store by itself, you know, on a user to user basis. But it's probably, I doubt they're doing it that way. It's probably a whole disk based on, you, you know, if a user's logged in at all or not. Hmm. Yeah, because that was my first thought was, I was like, all right, well, that's great. That stops like your basic person from just, this actually, you know what, this will work. Somebody asked to use your phone. They're like, I need to make a call or something. You could turn this on and hand it to them so they can make a call without oh, like, right. going through I hadn't your thought stuff. about that. Yeah, but I wouldn't, I don't know that I would still trust this to, you know, a tech or somebody that knows the system very well. Because again, they can still, I feel like they can still get to your stuff. Yeah, I think we'll have to wait till this is, been used for a while and see how it fleshes out in practice 
Yeah. And also, this is just Samsung. This is not all Androids. And of course, it's not Apple at all. Um, no, but I think that this is the sort of thing that will get more traction on. over time. Yeah. Yeah. But if you have this feature, I I'd certainly make sure that you're aware of how to access it and use it in case it, you need to. Mm -hmm. All right. Next article is hackers use Microsoft IIS web server logs to control malware. And this comes to us from Bleeping Computer. So the Canefly Hacking Group, aka UNC3524, you know, which rolls off the tongue, is using a previously unseen technique of controlling malware on infected devices via Microsoft Internet IIS Explorer web, web logs. And this was discovered by Symantec. So IIS is Microsoft's web server. And you interact with a web server running on this platform, it logs what requests you made, where you came from, and what you did in that, you know, when you said that, sent that interaction to the IIS web server. So the way that Canefly is using this is instead of making requests to existing pages or using existing parameters, the attacker sends specific strings to the IIS web server, which end up being put into the log which is subsequently read by malware, which has been previously installed on the web server. So there's three basic commands that they're, that they're using here. WRDE, which adds additional malware, a web shell, and the ability to remove that web shell when you're done with it with a, a command parameter with the WRDE. Then there's EXCO, which executes a command and then there's CLLO, which disables IIS logging. And since this, this is command and control of an existing piece of malware through the logs, it would seem that this last command, the CLLO, is really when they're completely finished with whatever it is they're doing because disabling the, the IIS logging would then destroy their ability to communicate with the tools on there because the logs are no longer being generated. Yeah, unless they're adding a different malware that second malware ad uses a different c2 but mm -hmm. yeah it, right it, i don't see why you would discard this particular piece of malware unless you were done with it entirely yeah because you'd run that w the wrde which would clean up your other malware potentially and then you issue that last command which to say was the logging but it's probably pretty hard to detect because no one's really looking at ias logs expecting the command and control to be in there yeah, you're looking for SQL injection, you're looking for, you know, directory traversal, all the kind of standard attacks. Um, I don't know, because so many, there's like random tokens and other random strings to, you know, identify the user and cookies and stuff like that. Although I, I get that not all those are through the request line specifically, but I can see like finding non-obvious words like these in there would be real hard. Well, if you know what they are, you could find them though. And no, they're probably, this is probably going to be, you know, start getting worked into different types of detection signatures as well. Actually, you know what though? I, how can they be sure that WRDE is not in some kind of request somewhere as a random, or I wonder if they, maybe they base 64 encoded or something. I'm not sure that detail was not in yeah. the article. Yeah. This article was surprisingly <laughs> short when we originally put it on here. We were like, oh, this is going to be a pretty long article. We should make time to talk about it. And then after we read it, we're like, oh. This is not that long and there's not that much information in here. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll hear more about this in the future. Yeah. But what I was thinking is, you know, they don't have to even use specific strings like this if they want to, I mean, it, a, 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 agreed that not using those would add a level of complication. But what they could do 
is use like a knocking technique rather than specific phrases in order to indicate what actions they want to take place. So imagine the malware is reading the IIS logs and says, if you see an IP attempt to connect to you or request these three resources in this order, then you do this thing. Or maybe it's five or 10 because the possible randomness of a regular user trying to access those same three resources in that order could run into a problem. But that way, there's nothing unusual about the logs at all. It's simply the sequence coming from any individual IP, which indicates what action needs to take place. Yeah, there's all kinds of things you could do like that. You could say, you know, if you have any, if you've done any recon on them, you can say only look at the entries in the search bar on this one particular page. Or you could spread, you could turn the commands into hashes, or you could spread the data out over multiple requests. And, you know, when you do a base 64 decode or some other kind of decode and compile it together, you could upload the malware this way, turn them out, you know, take the malware, take the binary or the, the code for it, uh, base 64 encode it, and then just start pasting it in the search box. Obviously it'd be better doing an automated fashion, but this is so interesting and this is so crazy. Yeah, and you're not going to think, the thing about it is because it's an IIA web server, it's expecting connections from the internet. Yeah, it's its and, job. And even if you're doing HTTP and doing SSL interception on this, uh, it's your your IDS or whatever you're sending those logs, the, the network traffic to is not going to see anything malicious in what it's, what it's decrypting or what it's reviewing in those network logs either. So this is... I think this is pretty smart, pretty smart method for CNC, which will be, and the longer that, or the more popular this concept gets, the harder it's going to be to detect until eventually you're going to get to the point, like I said, unless you find the malware that's reading the log and determine how it's doing that, you're not going to find the CNC via network methodologies. But of course, the the server still has to have some kind of malware on there to begin with in order to start reading those logs. So yeah. rather than focus on the CNC, you need to look at it from that other aspect. Yeah, I wonder if there's a way. Like I was just talking about, like you can you can put the malware in via encoded strings in the requests, and then it ends up in the logs. And then if you could figure out some way to do a command injection to maybe something like a cert util is on all Windows systems and can decode. That'd be interesting. If you could figure out like a code injection to run cert util to decode the malware from the log that'd be cool not for us that would suck for us yeah because there's no malware to detect until like you're like like there's no malware on the wire to detect before it gets there it's not till it runs on the system that you're like oh haha there's malware here anyways uh, i will point out that there was similar malware that used windows event logs to store the malware itself it was detected by kaspersky back in may it was not detected by detecting the malware in the logs, it was detected by anomaly and behavior-based detections, which doesn't surprise me. Whenever you get a novel methodology like this, there's no signatures for it. But, you know, maybe we'll see signatures for this. Well, I, I'm I'm glad it was caught through anomaly detection from an actual security tool, though, versus <laughs> someone stumbling across it. Because that leaves a little bit of hope for the possibility of actually finding something new through purposeful design rather than luck. But what you can do about it is right now, what you can do 
is now that you know what those commands look like, you can take a look at your IS logs and see if you can find any of those commands in there to see if you might be already run a victim to this. Yep. Time for a hunt. Yay. A simple hunt, but I'll allow it. But of course, as we mentioned before, the attackers still need to rely on the original method of infection and malware that, that reads the logs. So you still need to do your regular blocking and tackling and hopefully prevent the initial malware foothold from getting into your network. Keep your AV up to date, you know, do your phishing response and all that kind of stuff. So this is just another method of command and control. Don't neglect your other defensive depth strategies or think that they are completely without merit now that this thing is, the C2 is here and it's difficult to detect. All right, are we done? We're done. We're done. Well, that looks like that's all the articles we have for today. Thank you for joining us. Follow us at Serengeti Psych on Twitter and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. 